Welcome, everyone. Today, we're very happy to be able to introduce you to Carol Boston Weatherford. She was born here in Baltimore, and she's written many books. Most of them are children's books about the Underground Railroad and other things pertinent to African-American culture. This is her first YA novel, and we think that it's absolutely wonderful, and we're very happy to share her and her book here with you today. Thank you. Good morning. Now, what school are you from? North. Oh, Doris Johnson. Doris M. Johnson. And where is that? Okay, okay. Okay, well, I went to Northwestern High School, so that's a different side of town, I guess. Uh, glad to be here. I want to share with you, um, actually, this is the wrong one. I want to share with you the book trailer for Becoming Billie Holiday. And then I'll be doing a whole lot of talking. All right, so that's Becoming Billie Holiday. You've all, have you read the book yet? You've read it. Okay, good, good. So you'll be able to ask me some good questions about it. Uh, the idea for this book came to me uh, in 2006. And I mentioned to my husband that I had this book idea. I wanted to write about Billie Holiday, who's my muse. You know what a muse is? A muse is someone or something that inspires you, that inspires an artist. So Billie Holiday had been my muse for maybe 20, 20 years, at least 20 years, maybe even more. But, and I had written 30 books, already written 30 books, and it finally you know, the idea came to me, well, maybe I'll write about Billie Holiday. So I told my husband, and he said, well, I don't think teenagers are going to be interested in that because she's been you know, dead too long, and they don't listen to jazz, and they don't know who she is. And I said, you know, you're probably right. I'm always trying to write about something that nobody's interested in. So, <laughs> so I abandoned the idea. Then I visited uh, Baltimore. My mother, I live in North Carolina now, but my mother still lives here. So I come up several times a year. And I was visiting Baltimore during spring break in 2006. And I took my son, who's a, who was then a teenager. He's still a teenager, getting ready to be 20. But he was in high school at the time. And I took him and a friend to the Great Blacks and Wax Museum. How many have been there? Okay, so you know that there's a statue of Billie Holiday on the second or third floor. So my son and his friend, you know, kind of went off on their separate direction. Uh, in a separate direction in the museum, and there I was, you know, left wandering around by myself, and I made it up to third floor, and I was standing in front of the Billie Holiday exhibit, and a girl walked up to the exhibit with her mother, and the girl said, ooh, Billie Holiday, and I looked at the girl, and she looked younger than you all, and I said, how old are you, and she said, 14, and I said, and you know, you know about Billie Holiday, and she said, yeah, she could really sing, so I kind of looked at the wax figure myself, and it was almost as if Billie Holiday said, see, I told you to write my book. So I then uh, decided that I would go forward with the project. And I'll tell you a little bit about the research uh, later, if, if that happens to be one of your questions. But I want to share some of the poems with you. Since you've read the book, you already know that the poems are all titled after Billie Holiday's songs. And that was a decision that I made you know, in, the, in my creative process. Um, one of the things I did was listen to her music as I read her biographies. So that was the, listening to the music was part of my research process. Uh, so I'm going to start at the almost at the beginning with why was I born? Why was I born? Okay, I'll give you a chance to turn. It's on page 12. This is unusual to do a reading and everybody's got the book. <laughs> Great, yeah. Why was I born? Because Sadie had one day off a week from her job as a live-in maid and crammed as many thrills as she could into the few hours she called her own. Cause teenagers flocked to the carnival in July for rides, cotton candy, and sideshows. Cause Clarence had rested his banjo for the evening, hoping to sneak a peek under the tent during the burlesque show. Cause he and Sadie bumped into each other at the hot dog stand and shimmied all night long in the sultry summer air. Cause Clarence whispered in Sadie's ear, sweet talked his way right up her skirt. Cause that one time was all it took for two dumb kids to make a baby. Cause Sadie went to Philly with full belly to keep from shaming her Baltimore kin. 
because I could not wait a minute longer to burst on the scene, and 2.30 a.m. April 7, 1915, was as good a time as any to gasp my first breath, cry my first chord, because I no more chose my folks than chose my name, Eleonora. As you know, um, Billy's uh, parents were not married, um, and in fact, there's some uh, controversy now about whether Clarence was even really her father, but during her lifetime, she always thought he was her father, so we're going to, uh, the poems are all written, you know, on that, on that premise, that, that Clarence was her father. So her mother and father never married. Uh, they also never, never lived together. So one of Billy's deepest yearnings was to have this complete family that she never really was able to um, experience, to, to realize. This poem is called, My First Impression of You. Tall, dark, and dashing, distant relative passing through with empty pockets and promises. You pinched my cheeks and bounced me on your knee, but music was your sweetie pie. You were the envelopes mom kissed, the letters she read over and over, and the dollar bill she tucked in her bra. You were the one she blamed when rent was due and I needed new shoes, the thief who stole her heart and her youth. A happy-go-lucky banjo-playing, whiskey-swigging papa, gone in the blink of an eye. And I'm on the next page now with How Could You. How could you? How could you pack your banjo and big band wishes and run to New York, leaving mom to care for me as best she could alone without a cent from you? What kind of father would do that, Clarence Holiday? Not that you ever came around much, even before you left. Uh, Billy was Catholic, as many people in Maryland are and uh, were at that time. And one of the first churches that she attended was St. Francis Xavier. This is called Missa Cantata which is uh, Latin for sung mass, and we're on page 18. I feel like I'm in church and telling people to turn to the hymn in the hymnal. <laughs> Missa cantata, sung mass. In Sadie's house, there was none of that Bible-thumping, hand-clapping, holy-rolling kind of religion. We were staunch Catholics who lit candles before saints, ate fish on Fridays, and had the priest over for Sunday lunch. At St. Francis Xavier, the oldest black Catholic church in all of the United States, I was baptized with holy water. Between Latin chants, I kneeled while mom prayed Hail Marys. I knew how to cross myself before I could tie my shoes. Now, Billy was a tomboy, um, and you know that she, you know, she practically raised herself on Baltimore streets because her mother, uh, well, her father was never in the home, and her mother was often out of town working as a live-in maid for wealthy white families. Um, and when she had those, when her mother had those uh, live-in maid jobs, she left Billy uh, either with distant relatives or with neighbors. And uh, one thing that Billy, Billy didn't, you know, she didn't have a whole lot of super, supervision because the folks that Billy, her mother left her with uh, usually had their own challenges. You know, they were poor, um, you know, they're black folks dealing with the Jim Crow laws. Uh, and they also, you know, generally had children of their own that they had to look after. So Billy was just another mouth to feed and another child to have to look after. So she had a lot of time on her hands and often was left to her own devices the folks that she stayed with would see her off to school in the mornings, but as you know, because you've read the book, she didn't always make it to school. They would, you know, get her up in time and see her out the door and say, have a nice day at school, but then Billy would hit the streets. And a lot of times she was playing with boys. She was somewhat of a tomboy. So we're on page 22 now with, You Ain't Gonna Bother Me No More. You Ain't Gonna Bother Me No More. 
I could keep up with the boys shooting marbles and dice, but not catching bugs. Crawly things gave me the creeps, and all the boys knew it. Once, after a ball game, I was sitting on the curb, and a sore loser swung a rat by the tail right in my face. I begged him to stop, but he just grinned. Then that, ra that rat brushed my cheek. I grabbed a baseball bat and sent that boy to the hospital. I think he had it coming. So Billy, um, you know, continued to play hooky. I think you call it skipping school nowadays. Back in my days, we called my day we called it um, playing hooky. And she got picked up on the street one day by the truant officer. Truancy is another word for not, you know, not attending school like you're supposed to be. And she was put in um, Sisters of the Good Shepherd, a reform school. Her mother was found to be neglectful because she wasn't giving Billy the kind of supervision that she needed as a child to attend school regularly. So this is um, a scene from Reform School, and it's um, on page 29. It's a sin to tell a lie. The Sisters of the Good Shepherd took in laundry and raised chickens to make ends meet. We girls all had chores, washing and ironing linens, making beds, mopping floors, feeding chickens, gathering eggs, peeling potatoes, and scouring pots. An idle mind is the devil's workshop, the nuns said, and confession is good for the soul. Once in the five-and-dime store, a pair of silk stockings called my name. Eleonora, want to dance? When the clerk wasn't looking, I balled up those stockings, stuffed them in my pocket, and waltzed outdoors with my heart pounding. That wasn't the only time I stole. Now, Billy was... Um, Industrious. Of course, she was Eleonora back in this uh, when she was in Baltimore. So Eleonora was industrious, and one way that she earned money was by scrubbing marble steps. Uh, but she wanted to make a little more money than most of her friends who were doing that kind of work. So she came up with a, a plan. And I'm on page 32 with Jeepers Creepers. Jeepers Creepers. To earn some change for candy or a picture show, boys shined shoes, collected junk, or sold Afro newspapers. Girls minded babies or cleaned, in my case, front steps. Baltimore had miles of row houses and marble stoops. And even lousy housekeepers whose homes were filthy inside wanted sparkling clean stoops. That's where I walked in. The going rate for scrubbing steps was five cents. I figured I could double my money if I brought my own bucket and brush. I went from door to door, block to block with my offer. When someone balked at 15 cents, I'd throw in a bathroom or kitchen floor for free. Some days I made two bucks, a lot of money back then. So I'm on page 34 now um, with what had to be a turning point in uh, Eleonora's childhood. Um, it's Christmas Eve, uh, 1926, and as you know, she was raped by a neighbor. The poem is called, I'll Never Be the Same. On Christmas Eve, 1926, Mom and her boyfriend, Wee Wee, had gone out of town, leaving me home alone. Our neighbor, Mr. Rich, knocked on the door and said, Mom asked him to check on me, make sure I was okay. But he checked where he had no business, put his hands where no man's had been, and forced his way between my legs. That's where he was when Mom caught him with his pants down. She called the police and had him arrested. At the police station, two doctors examined me, poked and probed as I softly sobbed. 
Mr. Rich was charged with rape. That put mom on trial too. The court sent me back to House of the Good Shepherd, this time as a state witness. But the nuns made me repent, and I was baptized again as if the rape had torn me from God. At the trial, the judge sentenced Mr. Rich to three months in jail. Hell, I was the victim and was locked away almost as long. In February, Mom borrowed money from her father for a lawyer. He got me released. I walked and talked the same as before, but my childhood was spent. Now, shortly after that, uh, Billy dropped out of school. Um, it was fifth, she was in fifth grade when she dropped out of school. And, of course, you know, out of school, she had to, she had to find some work. She wanted to, you know, continue to earn some money. And evidently, uh, $2 a day earning, uh, scrubbing steps was not enough. So she got a job in what's known as a good time house, a brothel, a house of prostitution. This is called I Hear the Music, The Blues Are Brewing, and it's on page 39. Um, and I should tell you, this is, when she, this is when she got exposed to jazz. I hear music, the blues are brewing. I was no stranger to hard work and Miss Alice had plenty of it in her good time house. I kept busy with errands and chores, washing basins and toilets, changing towels, putting out Lifebuoy's soap, and peeking through a keyhole now and then. I got paid in tips, but would have worked for free to wind up her Victrola and hear music fill the room. As Bessie Smith belted out bar after bar, bending notes to moods, I mouthed the words till I knew her blues by heart. The jazz bug bit me good when Louis Armstrong and his hot five swaggered through West End blues and turned music on its ear. I had never heard singing without a single word. Scat! Dig that. Those blues sure were brewing. Moving on to page 42. Uh, Billy was a big, big fan of movies. And uh, this is just about her, you know, her going to the movies one day, going to a picture show, as they called it back then. I wished on the moon. I may have been poor, may have been orphaned half the time, but for five cents, I could lose myself in a bargain matinee. Sitting front row center at the colored theater, I imagined myself a damsel in satin, dripping in diamonds, safe in the hero's arms. Those movies may have been black and white, but my dream was technicolor. I left the dark theater, squinting in broad daylight, stars in my eyes. So Billy, you know, with her money from uh, scrubbing steps and uh, working in the brothel, uh, got to see a movie every now and then. Uh, she also hung out at night, and I should tell you that at the, this is in the 1920s, which was the, the golden, which was known as the jazz, the jazz age. It's when jazz, you know, really became popular uh, in the United States. Uh, and Billy had, even though she was uh, not even a teenager yet, hung out at night in the clubs and after hours joints. And what I was going to tell you about the 1920s is at, at this time in our nation's history, alcohol was illegal, but marijuana was legal. So that just to put, kind of put things in perspective. This is called, uh, I'm on page 47, I'm painting the town red. I was a moth and the fast life a flame. Evenings found me at house parties, small clubs and speakeasies, sipping white lightning and smoking weed with night owls who didn't suspect my age. One night, I sang a blues I'd learned while listening to Victrola's. 
My chirping hushed the chatter, and the night crowd clapped for more. With a half dozen songs, I made the rounds at Club Paradise, Buddy Loves, Miss Ella's, and Pop Majors, and was a regular at Ethel Moore's Good Time House. She was like a big sister to me, and piano players like brothers. In shady after-hour spots, I found a voice to grow into and someplace to belong. So Billy did not, um, or Eleonora, as she was still known at the time, did not achieve her dream of having a family in a traditional sense. So the night crowd kind of became uh, her family. And she sang enough uh, around at clubs and uh, after-hours joints to think that she could compete in an amateur contest. Now, you know, American Idol, is that's our version of uh, today's version of the amateur contest. And it wasn't as much of a big deal then, but there was a place in Baltimore, a theater called the Harlem Theater. Um, I can't remember. It was on Harlem Avenue. I can't remember where the intersection is. Uh, it, it later, by the time I was uh, a teenager, it had been uh, become a church. So I don't know what the Harlem Theater is now, if, it's e if the facility is even still in use. But she competed at the Harlem Theater Am in, the, in the Harlem Theater uh, Amateur Hour uh, contest. I'm on page 48, and the poem is, You Go to My Head. I sang my songs so much that they became the soundtrack for my dreams, the melody of my moods, a room I lived in, and a balm for my wounds. I sang my songs enough to know them backward and forward, enough to wonder if they could lift me from hometown haunts to center stage. I'd sung my songs enough to think I could take on Baltimore's best talent at the Harlem Theater Amateur Hour, and maybe even when. If you sing a song enough, it can go to your head that way. Now, uh, Billy continued to run the streets of Baltimore, and you know, it was only a matter of time before one of the people that her mother had, had left her with uh, got tired of that nonsense. Uh, and not only was Billy running the streets, she was um, dealing with older men, and she got, was getting in fights with men. Uh, she'd come home not only hungover, but also black and blue from, with bruises. And the woman that she lived with, Miss Lou, contacted Billy's mother and told her, well, you, you need to get your child out of here. You, she needs to be with you. So Billy's mother sent for her, and she had her first train ride, first trip out of town, and went to New York. Well, she was supposed to be going to New Jersey, but she had heard about this place called Harlem and decided that uh, she was going to stop in Harlem first. So I'll read you the poem uh, where she takes this detour. It's called Autumn in New York, and that's on page 56. Autumn in New York. Mom had paid my fare to Long Branch, New Jersey, but my heart was set on Harlem, and my mind was made up. I ditched the kitty name tag and rode to New York to see the sights and catch some thrills before contacting mom. Manhattan was more than I bargained for. Amidst crowds and skyscrapers, I was an ant on the sidewalk. Scared to tackle the subway, I never made it uptown. A social worker spotted me, wandering and could smell that I was lost. She bought me a meal and put me up for the night in what I thought was a fancy hotel, but turned out to be the YWCA. The next morning, she dropped me off at the children's home. I stayed there a couple of weeks until Mrs. Levi, the lady mom worked for, picked me up. We drove to Long Branch, where mom had hired me out as a maid. Harlem would have to wait. So, Billy, you, you've read the book, so you know she didn't work out as a maid. Um, and so her time in Long Branch was, sh was short-lived, and she and her mother did eventually 
make it to Harlem. I'm on page 58 now with Love for Sale. Love for Sale. Mom didn't know what to do with me after I lost my live-in job, but she saw I wasn't cut out to be a servant. I was too headstrong, too proud. Plus, she was tired of scraping by, and Harlem was calling. We hit town with little to nothing, settled uptown in one room of a high-rent apartment owned by Florence Williams. Several women shared the place. I had been around Alice Dean's and Ethel Moore's good time houses enough to know this was a brothel. Mom was hired as the housekeeper, but soon we were both turning tricks. Harlem was no promised land. It was a sea of black folks striving to rise from fields to factories or from hard luck to street hustles flowing through clubs and churches, grooving on Jesus and jazz. Harlem was a black sea that parted each night for white partygoers with money to burn and cares to shed. I was swept up by the tide. So they got arrested in this good time house. And Billy, uh, to avoid being sent to reform school again, lied about her age. I don't know what, I think she, maybe she said she was 17 or 21, but she was 14 when she got arrested for prostitution. And she spent some time in jail uh, to avoid going to reform school. And when she got out, uh, she asked her father if they could stay with her, because he had this big apartment. He also had a wife by then. And the wife said, no, you can't, they, you and your mother can't stay here. So they got their own place, and it was, it was rough, because by then it was the Great Depression. So uh, Billy's mother got sick, and Billy had to find a job, and I'm on page 61. The poem is, I don't stand a ghost of a chance. During a cold snap, Mom took sick and couldn't find work as a maid. Rent was past due, and the landlord threatened to set us out on the street. We needed cash yesterday. Refusing to turn tricks again, I pounded the pavement along 7th Avenue, but no one needed kitchen help. Then I saw a sign in a window, Dancer Wanted. I couldn't dance my way out of a box, but had to try. My two left feet shuffled right into a corner. I was pitiful. The piano player laughed so hard he cried. Honey, you sure can't dance, he said. Can you sing? I asked him to play a number and showed what I could do. Guests at the tables stopped chewing and chatting to listen. When the tune was over, you could have heard a pin drop. I landed the job. At last, I'd get paid to sing my songs. Chicken and waffles plus tips. So you can see she didn't get rich right away. Uh, and this is a typical night um, in Billy's early career. This is before she recorded. I'm on page 63. Spreading the rhythm around. Night after night at Mexico's, Go Grabbers, Club Hacha, Pod and Jerry's, The Bright Spot, Alhambra, Shim Sham Club, or No Name Speakeasies, I spread rhythm like jam, like jam till I grew dizzy from the beat. For two dollars and tips, I'd strut from table to table, singing the same songs in the same tacky dress changing the lyrics slightly to spice up my act. I flavored jazz like soul food, and the night crowd ate it up. I want to read you a poem now from, I think, from when she first recorded. Let's see if I can find it. 
Well, I'll read you another one because I'm not going to flip through the entire book. Um, let's do... But not for me. Um, this is another um, turning point, perhaps, in Billy's, Billy's life. It's when she changed her name. I'm on page 72. But not for me. Introducing Eleonora Fagan. Eleonora and her esquires. Eleonora and the Encore Orchestra. Nora and the New Yorkers. All wrong. Eleonora Fagan was fine for some body barmaid or factory worker right off the boat. Fine for a striving domestic fresh from the cotton fields. But not for a blues mama. Not for me. Eleonora Fagan had vaudeville written all over it. I needed a name to carry me from Harlem to Hollywood to spark applause when MCs called me on stage, a name to light marquees. Bessie Smith was the empress, Mamie Smith the queen, titles earned by record sales, and I was an unknown. Eleonora who? I needed a name that fit like a silk gown, a name to drape like a pearl mink stole across my shoulders. My daddy Clarence rarely gave me the time of day, so I took what I wanted, a hint of his name. The movie star Billy Dove, my idol, supplied the other half, a name equal parts tomboy and flirt. Billy Holiday, Miss Billy Holiday. Now that has an uptown ring. Now, Billy Holiday, how many of you have heard Billy Holiday sing? A few? Well, you're going to hear in a few minutes. She had a small voice, and it said that had the microphone not been invented when she was alive, she never would have had a singing career. Her voice was barely an octave. You know what an octave is? That's eight notes on a musical scale. So, you know, she, her, she didn't have this huge range like opera singers have and some other professional singers. Um, I'm on page 76, and the poem is, How Deep is the Ocean? Without the microphone, there would be no spotlight. No band backing me with bluesy swing. My voice was small, barely an octave, but the mic enlarged my songs, let me hold listeners close. With the microphone, my voice was an ocean, deep as my moods, and audiences dove in. Okay, here's the poem I wanted to find. I was getting out of, out of the, chronolo uh, the chronology. So turn to page 79. And the poem is, uh, Please Don't Talk About Me When I'm Gone. The occasion is Billie Holiday's first recording session. She was discovered at a club uh, called Monette's by uh, John Hammond, who was a record producer who had gone to Yale, and he set up her first recording session. Please don't talk about me when I'm gone. Ethel Waters came up the hard way like me, but in the Philly slums. A sixth grade dropout, she married at 13 and divorced after one year as a punching bag for a no good man. She might have worked as a maid forever if two vaudeville producers hadn't heard her singing at a talent contest. On the Chitlin circuit, they billed her as Sweet Mama Stringbean. She was cutting records when I was still playing tag. No shouter or growler like most blues mamas, Ethel sang low and sweet, her voice smoldering, mouthing each word as if a secret song about her private pain. She shimmied her way into many a heart,
but pierced mine with a jibe. The day I cut my first record, she sat in the studio sneering. She sings like her shoes are two sizes too small. I could have put my foot right up her behind. So with that uh, recording session, Billy didn't, uh, she didn't, you know, have a gold record or anything. I don't know if they even had gold records by then, but the record pretty much went nowhere. It was um, a record called My Mother's Son-in-Law. The flip side was Riffin' the Scotch, and Benny Goodman, who was a, a band leader of the time, uh, the, the record went out under his name. Her name wasn't even on the record uh, initially. But her career, you know, was, was going at that point. Um, and you know that Billy liked to make money. She was um, industrious. And one of the things she did to make money was to do uh, parts in, she acted in radio soap operas. All the soap operas that are on today, at least some of them that are on today, started out uh, on, the, on the radio. So she had these parts on soap operas. And she also, um, she must have been somewhat of a drama queen because she went on to be in some movies. And I, I'm going to read to you, I want to read to you the movie that she, uh, so about the movie that she was in with Duke Ellington on page 89. And I think there was some footage. Oh, that, no, that's, I don't think that's the footage. You, you've already probably seen the footage of her in um, the Duke Ellington movie, which was called Symphony in Black. Sophisticated lady. John Hammond dubbed me a star on the rise. So impresario Irving Mills tapped me for a movie role, with Duke Ellington, no less. The suave bandleader composer was the toast of Harlem, holding sway in black tie and tails at New York's swankiest night spot, the whites-only cotton club. Black waiters and performers catered to well-heeled guests slumming uptown. They swung the night away to hot jazz and dazzling reviews in lush cabarets. The rest of us listened on radios. We answered Duke's Creole love call, glimpsed his black and tan fantasy, felt his mood indigo, and heeded his hip decree. It don't mean a thing if it ain't got that swing. In true Duke fashion, the production we were filming had a la-di-da title, Symphony in Black, A Rhapsody of Negro Life, and four parts, The Laborers, A Triangle, A Hymn of Sorrow, and Harlem Rhythm. Duke gave singers sound advice. Slip on a stage persona and stick with it. He shaped his music to each singer's mold. The film's only vocal, a number called blues, fit me like a second skin. I played a gal jilted by a two-timing man. To the wailing of an oboe, he knocked me to the floor. Seventy times in as many takes till I was black and blue. As a muted trumpet wept, I sang my number from the ground. The whole symphony was less than ten minutes long, but that didn't matter to Mom. She bragged all over Harlem that I was bound to be a star, prodded all her friends to watch for the premiere. So Billy um, went on tour. She toured uh, with Artie Shaw's band. Artie Shaw was a white band leader. He's still alive. He's one of the few people that I, you've, you've heard mentioned in the book who is still alive. Um, and she was the first African-American, Billy was the first African-American to tour with an all-white big band. And when she toured with Artie Shaw, there were some places that uh, the band, you know, where the band was booked, that Billy was not allowed to perform on stage with this all-white band because of segregation laws. So the band uh, hired a, an understudy for Billy, a white singer named Helen Forrest, 
who would sing at places where Billy could not perform. Billy also toured with the Count Basie Band, which was an all-black big band. And in an odd twist of segregation, uh, when she she reached Detroit with the all-black Count Basie Orchestra, the theater owner there asked her if she would wear dark makeup on her skin to darken up her skin. She was she was light skinned. I don't think she was I don't think she was that light skinned, but she was, you know, she was light skinned. The the theater owner was afraid that people would think that a white singer was performing with this all black band, unless Billy put this makeup, this dark makeup on her face. So she did that and it, it really that really sickened her. The prejudice really sickened her. Discrimination. So, but she had lots of good times with the Count Basie band. And this is from, I'm on page 97. The poem is called Detour Ahead. Detour Ahead. Touring with Count Basie meant headlining at hotels where we couldn't sleep and playing one-nighters at juke joints and dance halls where some drunken fool might knife a man over a two-timing woman. Playing with Basie's big band meant riding a blue goose bus all day and night, passing vacancy signs aimed at whites only till we reached a black hotel or rooming house where we could rest our tired bones. Traveling with Daddy Basie meant being the only girl among 16 guys, learning to shoot craps from old hands, and then kneeling with Lady Luck till I wore holes in my hose and beat those guys at their own game. Being part of Basie's band meant cutting up with prez, treating the fellas to my home cooking, and when they gambled their pay away, coming to their rescue with loans for sweethearts' Christmas gifts. Working for the count meant being shorted on payday, not having cash for a hot dog, and never having the right clothes, equipment, or instruments, but always having the right sound. Swinging with Basie's band meant barely being able to read a note between us, yet knowing a hundred songs by heart. Seventeen musicians playing by ear and breathing as one. Count Basie's big band was the jazziest party on wheels. And let's see what I want to what I want to read next. I think I'm going to read uh, the next to the last poem, which is on page one hundred seven. It's called, If Dreams Come True. If dreams come true, I will bathe in spotlights and sleep on satin. Gardenias will bloom year-round in my backyard. Sadie's rib joint will make rich folks lick their fingers. Prez and I will do ten dozen duets. Crooners will sing my praises between the lines of songs. Hornmen will trumpet my arrival and claim me as their own. Piano players will secretly pine for me as my solos move them to tears. Singers will try but fail to mimic my tempo and phrasing. My biography will light the silver screen, my myth inseparable from my music. Cats will groove to my blues long after I'm gone, a legacy in wax. History will hail me in the same breath as Duke and Count, jazz royalty. I will reign over Swing Street and have found the love I crave. And those are poems from Becoming Billie Holiday. I'm going to switch up to the switch up to the PowerPoint. And I want to show you just um I've got a PowerPoint about my development as a writer and I've got another one on there about how a book is made. I don't know if you're interested in that, but I, I at least want to tell you a little bit more um about me. You already know I'm from Baltimore. Um 
That's me in first grade. And that is the first poem that I ever made up. Um, the year, as you can see, was 1962. I don't know who put 1962 on that thing. Um, I, I made up that poem uh, in first grade. And my mom was driving me home from school. And I announced to her on the way home that I had made up a poem. And then I said it out loud for her. By the time I finished saying it out loud, we were only two blocks from home, and she parked the car and asked me if I'd say it again. And when I said it the second time, she wrote it down. So that's really the only reason that I, you know, that I, that I even know what the poem is now. I wrote that day. I wrote it myself um, later that same year, but she wrote it down initially. My dad, um, both of my parents were educators. My mother was a guidance counselor for many years and later went into administration. And my father was a high school printing teacher at Douglas High School before he went into um, administration. And these are some of the poems, some, a couple of my early poems from second or third grade that he printed on the printing press. Well, his students actually printed it on the printing press in his uh, high school classroom. Now, that was very important to me, not because those poems were ever, ever published anywhere else, because they weren't, but because at the time, I didn't know that I was going to become the, the writer that I am today. Uh, I didn't even know that an author was something that you, a career that a little black girl from Baltimore could even pursue. Uh, but seeing my work in print at that early age gave me enough faith in my abilities so that when I was in my 20s and decided that I wanted to be an author, wanted to be a poet, that when I sent my work out and got rejections, the rejections didn't stop me in my tracks. I persevered because I knew I had enough faith in my abilities and I knew that someone would publish me because I had already seen my work in print. My dad had already published my work. So I persevered. I've been, in, I've been rejected by some of the best publishers in the country. Um, I was influenced by the poetry of uh, Langston Hughes. I was introduced to his poetry uh, when I was in elementary school up in Walbrook Junction at Edgewood Elementary. We had to memorize his poem, uh, I Too Sing America, and I've uh, loved his poetry ever since. Um, after I graduated from college, my dad took me to a play at the Morris Mechanic, which I understand is now closed. Uh, and the play was for colored girls who have considered suicide when the rainbow is enough. It was written by the woman uh, pictured uh, on the book, Antezaki Shange. And the poem, uh, I mean, the, the, the play was what Antezaki Shange called a choreo poem. Let me get you to say choreo poem. And what that meant was that her poem had been choreographed to dance, so that there was dance throughout it. And it was essentially just the dance and then these women, each, the, the women in the play had no names. It was like the woman in black, the woman in blue, the woman in, in, in red. So those were the, the names of the players and the performers. And they just performed her poems and they danced on stage. And that showed me that at the time that poetry could be performed on stage, that, that it was not meant to just be read, that you know, it had a life uh, on stage and it was meant to be enjoyed orally. And at, from that point on, I began writing for the ear rather than for the page. That's the first uh, poem or first anything that I had published by someone outside of, say, a school, you know, school setting um, and published by someone other than my father. And when that poem, the poem is called I'm Made of Jazz, and the po at the time that that poem was published, it was the longest poem I had ever written. It was three pages um, typed, because I was still using a typewriter back then. And at the time that it was published, I was about to go to graduate school. I had what's known as a full ride, meaning my, all my tuition was paid for to go to, and to go to graduate school. And I was going to go to graduate school for something called public administration. Sometimes they call it public policy now. That means you want to be involved in government, in some aspect of government work. So I was um, at the dentist office, and you know how you have to pass time in the waiting room looking at magazines. I opened this magazine and saw my poem. I had sent it to them, but they hadn't told me they published it, or even that they were planning to publish it. And I was just really surprised. And at that point, when I saw 
somewhere, uh, CM Boston, right under the, the title of the poem. When I saw my poem in print, I all of a sudden became, started telling people that I was a poet. Um, most people knew me back in those days as a fashion designer because I used to sew and I used to design clothes for individuals and for singing groups and I'd gone to school for fashion design. But I started telling people I was, this, I was a poet. Um, now that was 1980. My first book didn't come out till 1995. So it was a long haul, you know, from, you know, getting this one poem published to having a book published. But these are some of, I'll show you, that's my first book. And that's the first book that won a national award. That was called The Sound That Jazz Makes. I seem to have good luck with jazz books. They, get a, they win awards. Um, that was a, an award, a book, a book of poems that I published, my first book of poems for, for young people. That won uh, the same award. That's a book about um, segregation, about the Jim Crow era. I've written about slavery and segregation quite a bit. That's my best-known book, and it won a Caldecott Honor and a Coretta Scott King Award for illustration for Kadir Nelson, and it also won the NAACP Image Award. And those are some other books. That's poetry, more poetry, historical fiction, and you can see there's some overlap. I, I, my work kind of blurs the lines between different genres. Biography. Nonfiction, recurring themes, jazz, the freedom struggle, sports. Why I'm writing about sports, I do not know. I've got another book coming out about sports. Um, it's called Racing Against the Odds, about the first African-American NASCAR champion. I think that may be my last book about sports. Because the publishers, when the books about sports come out, the publishers you know, try to make it seem like I'm this big sports fan. Uh, she's, you know, she's really into baseball. No, she's not. No, she's not. Thank you so much.